back in 1980, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi starred in a movie called The Blues Brothers. All right, so you're familiar. That's good. And uh, so they play Elwood and Jake Blues, uh, two brothers, and the movie opens with Jake getting out of prison and them going to visit one of the nuns who raised them in an orphanage. They get there and talk to this nun only to discover that the orphanage is in danger of being closed unless the nuns can come up with $5,000 in 11 days. The brothers are inspired and they decide that they are going to get their band together and put on a benefit concert to raise the money to save the orphanage. And so most of the movie is them uh, getting their band back together. Somehow they're pursued by the police through most of it. Uh, along the way, there's cameos and performances by James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Cab Calloway, and many others. But the heart of this movie is their mission to save the orphanage, or as they put it, their mission from God. And this is their line to everyone they come in contact with, their old bandmates and everyone else, we're on a mission from God. That's what's driving them. Now, uh, being on a mission has driven more than one movie plot. The Blues Brothers is not unique in that regard. The highest grossing movies of the past several years are all superhero movies. And in those movies, there's always a mission that has to be accomplished. There's a greater purpose that has to be achieved. There's a great use to which extraordinary powers must be applied. And in all these mission-driven movies, there are always obstacles that have to be overcome for the mission to be accomplished. Uh, Jake and Elwood have to convince their bandmates, they have to find them and then convince them to play this concert. Uh, in the superhero movies, there's, there's always obstacles to be overcome. Maybe it's a villain who has a counter plan and is throwing up roadblock after roadblock to trip up the heroes. Sometimes they have to overcome internal obstacles, insecurity or fear or distrust. But in the movies, the obstacles always get overcome and the mission gets accomplished. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a very good movie. It always happens in the movies, but in real life, it doesn't always feel like a guarantee that the obstacles are going to get overcome. We have missions that we're about, purposes that we feel called to, and we discover pretty quickly that there are things that try to get in the way of us achieving those missions, internal obstacles as well as external. And this is absolutely true when it comes to the mission that Jesus has given us. It's a mission that's actually far more significant than raising $5,000 for an orphanage, as noble as that is. But the actual, literal mission from God that we have uh, matters a lot, and there are obstacles that could get in the way of us fulfilling it. They're not going to be overcome without purpose and effort and intentionality. We're looking at a passage of scripture today where Jesus talks about some of these obstacles. He gives warnings about some of the distractions that we've got to avoid if we're going to stay on this mission that he's called us to. Today we're looking at Mark 13, verses 1 through 23. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're continuing on in our series called Following King Jesus, looking at highlights from the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. And we're discovering that as we follow Jesus, as his disciples, it means that we're with him learning to be like him, which means we're going to do the things that Jesus did. That includes prioritizing the mission that Jesus was about. That's what we're going to see as we look at these, uh, these verses. It's not going to be accomplished if we don't heed the warnings that Jesus gives here. Would you stand with me? And follow along as I read these verses for us. It's a bit of a longer passage than we normally read, but I want to read the whole thing. 
uh, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter to the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Well, Lord, we want to take seriously the warnings that you spoke here in this passage. And so we pray that you would bring to us the revelation by your word, through your spirit, that you want us to receive today. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you more clearly. We do pray, Lord, that you would open our ears and our minds so that we can hear and understand what you want to say to us today. And even as you have been at work in this place already in this time together, continue to move on our hearts, Holy Spirit, quicken us to make the responses that you want us to make today so that we will not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. In your name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus' lengthy response to the disciples' question is set up by an interaction they have as they're leaving the temple area. One of the disciples comments on the massive stones and the magnificent buildings of the temple complex. And this was not an unusual thing to comment on. Some of the stones that were used to build the temple were massive. They were 37 feet long, 12 feet tall, and 18 feet wide. And the temple itself was an architectural marvel. It was overlaid with gold and white plaster. It was this gleaming, shining edifice. It was visible from most parts of the city of Jerusalem. It really was noteworthy. So it's not surprising that one of the disciples would comment on this, but Jesus' response is pretty surprising. It's actually pretty disconcerting because he says that the temple is going to be destroyed. Now, the temple was central 
to the religious life and the culture and the identity of the Jewish people. And so to think about the temple being destroyed, it was almost unthinkable. It's like, what would we even do if we didn't have the temple? There were some people in the time between the Old and New Testaments who had predicted the destruction of the temple. And when they did that, it was always in an apocalyptic context, having to do with the end of the world. The idea was if the temple's destroyed, it must be because everything else is being destroyed. If the temple is ever destroyed, it must mean it's the end of the world. So the disciples very likely had this association in their minds when they heard Jesus say the temple's going to be destroyed. And that's why they pull him aside later and say, Jesus, you got to tell us some more about this. You got to give us what's the sign that this is going to happen. When is this going to take place? We want to know when the end of the world is going to happen. Do you notice that Jesus does not give them the answer they want? He gives them the answer they need. He knew that they were making wrong associations. He knew they had the context wrong, and that was what was prompting this question. And so he does tell them a lot about what is going to happen, but he also stresses what should be most important to them, and that's not figuring out what's going to happen at the end of the world, but it's fulfilling the mission that Jesus was about and that he was commissioning them to continue. He's saying don't focus so much on the end Focus on what you're going to do between now and then. Jesus' message to his disciples then is the same message he would speak to us as his followers today. Focus on what's important. Don't get distracted. Stay focused on what matters most, and that's the mission. Stay on mission. Uh, Jesus summarizes that mission there in verse 10. It's to proclaim the gospel, the good news, to all nations, to make sure that everyone hears the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God that he brought within reach. Now, when we read verse 10, it may sound like kind of a passing reference, reference there, but actually, uh, actually, it's at the center of a concentric literary structure called the chiasm, and the point of that literary device is to draw attention to what's at the center of it. So actually, verse 10 is in a prominent place in this passage. It, the, uh, it may not sound natural to us, but to the people that first heard Jesus say this and first read these verses, they would have saw this is at the heart of what we're to get. There's a mission that has to be accomplished. Jesus says, I'm telling you all this ahead of time so that you can be on your guard, so that you can stay on the mission, so that you don't get distracted by all these other things that are going to happen. I want us to see the, the three warnings that Jesus gives in these verses because they're warnings that we need to heed no less than Jesus' first disciples needed to heed them so that we can stay on mission, so that we can focus on what matters most. The first warning Jesus gives is he says, don't be deceived by false messiahs. Uh, this is in verses 5 and 6 and 21 and 22. So this is the outermost layer of that concentric structure. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders if to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So Jesus says people are going to come and they're going to claim my name. They're going to claim to be me or they're going to claim to speak on my behalf. And that's true today, isn't it? That there are people who try to associate themselves with Jesus, 
who say that they're speaking on Jesus' behalf, but when you look carefully about what they're saying and when you look at what they do, you realize that does not really match up with who Jesus is and what he was about. Not everyone who speaks in Jesus' name is accurately representing Jesus. And when we listen closely to some of these people who would speak in the name of Jesus, we realize that they're proclaiming a message that's actually Jesus plus something. The good news that they're proclaiming is Jesus plus cultural acceptance, Jesus plus respectability, Jesus plus political power, Jesus plus a life of comfort and ease. And often when we look even more closely what they're saying, we realize it's really a message of Jesus minus. It's Jesus, but without the sexual ethic that he espoused. It's Jesus, but without the suffering and service that he modeled. It's Jesus, but without the healings and the exorcisms and all the supernatural stuff. Folks, the gospel that is at the heart of our mission is not a gospel of Jesus plus or minus. It's the good news of Jesus, period. It's Jesus in his fullness, as he actually is. Nothing needs to be added and nothing needs to be taken away from him. That's the good news that we're to proclaim. So people come trying to claim Jesus' name, people will also come claiming his title. Especially in verses 21 and 22, we see that they're claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. It's this prophesied Savior and King who is going to come, the prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is saying others are going to try to cast themselves in this role that only I can actually fill. And he says some of these false messiahs are going to be religious leaders. They're going to be false messiahs and false prophets who will perform signs and wonders, obviously not empowered by the Holy Spirit, as part of their deception. And friends, we do need to be discerning about who we listen to and who we follow, who we allow and trust to help us grow spiritually. Because some, we've got to avoid listening to people who add or subtract anything to Jesus or, or who try to take his unique place. We've got to avoid listening to people who set themselves up as kind of the, the, uh, the gateway to get to Jesus. Anyone who says, you've got to go through me to get to Jesus, we don't listen to them. We don't listen to those who set themselves up as gatekeepers in some way for the kingdom of God. We don't listen to those who demand an allegiance and a loyalty to themselves that really should only belong to Jesus. Don't follow spiritual leaders who distort the message of Jesus and draw attention to themselves. Follow spiritual leaders who do their best to present Jesus accurately and constantly are drawing your attention to him. Follow spiritual leaders who help you be more devoted to Jesus and less devoted to any individual person. False messiahs can definitely be religious leaders. I think we need to appreciate that in our context today especially, that's not always the case. That there are people who set themselves up as saviors and kings, but they don't use religious language to do it. And there's a lot of people that are willing to follow those kind of folks, people who are looking for saviors and kings, even if the religious language isn't being used. There are people who are willing to follow a, a business leader who appears successful because they think if they're like him, they'll become rich too. There are people who are willing to be disciples of politicians who have promised to save and deliver them, who have promised to save and deliver our country. 
There are people who are devoting themselves to the teachings of media personalities because they think that they've got the angle on truth. And if I listen to them, I can understand the world around me as it actually is. Now, on our best days, we would never listen to uh, anyone other than Jesus. We'd never look to anyone other than Jesus as our Savior. On our best days, we would never follow anyone as king other than Jesus, right? But the problem isn't with our best days, it's with our worst days. Because the enemy who opposes us doesn't fight fair. He'll attack us when we're most vulnerable. He'll try to kick us when we're down. And, and you know, Jesus, uh, in, at the beginning of verse 7, will say, do not fear. At the beginning of verse 21, he says, at that time, which as we'll see is a time of great distress. See, that's when we're at our most vulnerable, when we're afraid, when we're alarmed, when we're distressed, when we're confused, when we're weary and exhausted, when we're desperate for relief from painful circumstances. See, ironically, it's at the moments that we most need Jesus that we can be the most tempted to take our eyes off of him. We've got to heed the exhortation of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can run with perseverance the race marked out for us. To stay on mission, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus and not be deceived by anyone who tries to claim his name or his title. And when we've got our eyes fixed on Jesus, we can see the opportunities to advance the mission that the false messiahs actually point to. You know, the reason why there are so many contenders for Jesus' name and title is because there are people who are desperately looking for what those contenders purport to, to provide. People are desperate for salvation and deliverance. They're desperate to find uh, a leader who they can follow and model their lives after. They're desperately listening for a truth teller who can help them make sense of reality. And friends, in a world full of imposters and pretenders, we get to point people to the true Savior and King. It's Jesus. He's the one that people are looking for, whether they would use the language of Messiah or not. He's the one they're looking for. We get to point them to Him. Salvation and deliverance has come through Jesus. Jesus is the King worth following and modeling our lives after. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Folks, who do you know who's looking for a Messiah today? They're not using that language. But who do you know who's looking for a Savior? Who's looking for a King? Who's looking for someone who can lead them and deliver them? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's you. Maybe you've looked lots of other places and you've trusted in lots of people only to discover that they can't deliver what they promise. And today's your day to trust in Jesus, to, to follow him as Savior and King, the one who can rescue you and the one who's worth following and modeling your life after. Before you leave here today, you'll have a chance to make that choice. We uh, stay on the mission that Jesus has given us when we avoid the distraction of false messiahs, those who would claim the name or title of Jesus Christ. We stay on mission by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's the first warning Jesus gives. Don't be deceived by false messiahs. He also warns us, don't be dismayed by disasters. Or don't be dismayed by remotes that don't work. I'm not sure what I did. I'm not sure if I clicked something here, but anyway. Uh, don't, there it is. Don't be dismayed by disasters. Uh, so this is the, uh, the next layer in in that concentric structure. 
uh, look at what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8. <laughs> I might need some help advancing these, Dave. Thank you. So when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus is saying wars and rumors of wars are going to happen. Earthquakes and famines are going to happen. And some of these disasters are going to be so disastrous and so painful that you're going to think this must be the end of the world, but you'll be wrong they're just the beginning of birth pains. When full labor comes, then you'll know it. And especially when we look back with hindsight, we'll see, oh, what we thought was the end of the world was just a, 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 a foreshadowing of what was really going to come. So Jesus says that, and then later in verses 14 through 20, he, uh, he talks about another more localized disaster that he wanted his disciples to be prepared for. It says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Well, there, there's a lot in those verses that we could uh, discuss, and Bible scholars have torn apart every word in those verses, trying to figure out what exactly is Jesus talking about. And a big question is, is Jesus referring to something that has already happened, like in the lifetime of his first disciples and the first readers of Mark's gospel? Or is he referring to something that's yet to happen, like at the end of history, the end of the world? And I think the best answer is kind of both. Uh, in 66 to 70 AD, the Romans fought the Jews in Judea and put down a rebellion that they had mounted. And in those years, there were several abominations that, caused, that desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. Some of those by misguided Jewish zealots, some by the conquering Roman soldiers... But that happened. And in, that, in those years, Jerusalem and the whole region of Judea was a place that you would not have wanted to be. Fleeing would have sounded like really good advice. In 70 AD, the Romans burned Jerusalem and they utterly destroyed the temple to the point where there was literally not one stone standing upon another. Now, Mark's gospel was written before those events took place. And so when they happened, those first readers of his gospel would have made the connection. They would have said, oh, what we've heard happened in Jerusalem, what some of us maybe lived through, sure sounds a lot like what Jesus said was going to happen. And of course, the destruction of the temple was a literal fulfillment of what Jesus predicted in verse 2. So I do think there's a sense in which these verses have been initially partially fulfilled. But I think there's a greater fulfillment yet to come. The events of 66 to 70 AD are reminiscent of what Jesus said here. And the destruction of the temple did fulfill what he said in verse 2. But it's hard to match up other things that happened in those years to match those up exactly with what Jesus says is going to happen. So I think that there's a future fulfillment that's yet to come. And again, I think when we look back with the benefit of hindsight, we'll be able to see, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. What happened in 70 AD, as awful as that was, 
was a foreshadowing of this greater disaster that will happen at the end of history. So there's this future fulfillment yet to come. Now, Jesus says these disasters are going to happen. And the reason he does this is not to bum us out. It's not to just like, well, everything's going to blow up, I guess. You know, this is not, this is not Eeyore talks about the end times, okay? There's a point that Jesus has here. He wants us to be prepared and ready to know this is going to happen. Now, knowing that these disasters are going to happen does not make them any less painful or confusing when they happen. The point is not to, uh, not to say, oh, that it doesn't really matter because Jesus said it was going to come. When we hear about natural disasters like the recent earthquake in, in Turkey and Syria, we don't say, well, Jesus said it was going to happen, so it's not that big a deal. No, it's a big deal. We got to mourn with those who mourn. People died. Homes were destroyed. Livelihoods were lost. It should move our hearts. It's still a disaster. When we hear about the war in Ukraine and other conflicts around the world, we don't gloss over the horrors of those conflicts just because, well, Jesus said there'll always be war, so I guess it's not that big a deal. It's a big deal, and we should care a lot. The point is not to minimize the disasters when they come. The point is to be prepared for them and, I think, to see the opportunities in the disasters to advance the mission. Because when there's a disaster and we go and provide help to the helpless and relief to the suffering and hope to the hopeless, we're living out the good news that we proclaim. When we work for justice and we work for peace, when conflict ceases, that is good news. That's us living out the message that we proclaim. That's kingdom work. It's what we should be about. Jesus says, I'm telling you everything ahead of time so that you will be on your guard, so that you will not be distracted and thrown off when these disasters happen. They're going to come. They're going to be painful. And when the disasters come, it can be possible for us just to, um, to, to get distracted by them, to focus on them, even to get sidetracked in speculation. Is this the end of the world? Is this the end of the world? Is this the end of the world? And Jesus is saying, look, don't, don't get distracted with that. Stay on mission. I'm telling you ahead of time so you can be on your guard. Know that that's likely to happen. Resist that. Stay focused on the work that you're about. The disasters will come. The disasters will happen in the world, and disasters will come to our lives. And when they come, they're painful. They're confusing. But we don't want to be discouraged or distracted by them. We want to, uh, despite those disasters and even through them, we want to stay on mission, telling and living out the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. So we want to avoid being dismayed by disasters, deceived by false messiahs, and we don't want to be, um, we don't want to be derailed by persecution. Look at verses 9 through 13. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand trial before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So now we're at the innermost uh, level of this uh, structure in this passage, which I will, there it goes. And at the heart of this is verse 10, the mission. So you kind of see it laid out there. Jesus is saying persecution is going to come. 
And when the first readers of Mark's gospel saw this, they would have thought, once again, Jesus got it right. What Jesus predicted, they could testify, has happened. Because they were uh, persecuted by Jewish authorities. They were brought into councils and, and flogged in synagogues. They were persecuted by Roman authorities, especially under Nero's reign. They did have to stand before governors and kings. And they were betrayed by those closest to them, even their own family members. They would have said, Jesus, you got it right. Jews, Romans, our own family, yeah, we're hated by everyone because of you. Somehow the gospel also advanced despite that, but they could testify that persecution is real. Now listen, friends, here's a hard reality for us. Taking Jesus and his mission seriously is going to make us unpopular with all kinds of people. And we may not face persecution like Jesus' first followers faced. I think it's unlikely that we will. We have to acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters around the world that are facing severe persecution. It's possible. It happens. It is happening. But even if it's not at that level for us, we will pay a price for faithfully maintaining our witness to Jesus. You may not have family members literally betray you because of your faith. But you'll probably have family and friends who don't understand why you're so committed to Jesus and who may actually think less of you because of that. We're certainly living in a culture that is increasingly unfriendly towards people who take Jesus and his mission seriously. And that may not be as overt here in Tuolumne County as in other places, but still we've got to recognize that following Jesus means we're going to stand out more and more. We're going to be misunderstood. We're going to be maligned by folks when we stand for the same values and truths that Jesus himself stood for. In verse 13, Jesus says, Stand firm, endure. Stand firm, endure to the end. See, I think Jesus knew that when that persecution, mistreatment, opposition comes, we can be tempted to back down to give up, to quit. And we can also be tempted to give so much attention to fighting back against the opposition and the mistreatment that we get distracted from our mission. Our mission is not to protect ourselves from persecution. Our mission is not to protest persecution. Our mission is to proclaim the good news of Jesus to all nations. So we want to stay on mission. Yes, the opposition and mistreatment, when it comes, we don't ignore it. It happens. It hurts when it does. But we, but we stay on the mission that Jesus has given us. He's told us everything ahead of time so that we can be on our guard, so that we won't be distracted by the persecution, that we can stay on this mission. I, I really believe, folks, that we need to hear the warnings that Jesus is speaking in these verses. To not be deceived by false messiahs. Anyone who would just speak in Jesus' name or claim his role as Savior and King. Don't be deceived. We need to not be dismayed by disasters, natural disasters, wars, whatever may come, times of distress. We need to not be derailed by persecution, mistreatment, opposition when it comes. We need to hear those warnings. But folks, I also believe we need to take seriously the urgency of the mission that we're about and commit ourselves afresh to that. When you look at the life of Jesus, you see that this mission drove Jesus. It's what he was about. This was not some vague concept for him. It wasn't one of many items on his to-do list that he had to check off. 
Jesus was driven by this mission of proclaiming and demonstrating good news that the kingdom of God had come and that it was within reach. And I, I, Jesus was driven by this mission. He cared so much about it because he cared so much about people. See, this is, the mission is fulfilled when the kingdom of God touches down in individual lives and people are saved and healed and delivered and transformed. The mission matters because people matter. As a church, this is why we support missionaries around the world as well as ministries closer to home because we want people to hear this message who haven't yet had a chance to hear. We want people to respond that haven't yet responded to this. We want the kingdom of God to come more fully to the folks who live near us as well. There's a corporate response we make as a church, but folks, there's an individual response for us to make as well. Part of that individual response may be for you if you need to say today, I'm going to trust and follow Jesus. When I said, you're the one who needs a savior and a king, something in your heart said, yep, that's me. I wouldn't have put it in that language, but absolutely, that's what I'm looking for. Here's how you can take that step this, this morning. Uh, you, uh, you follow Jesus when you acknowledge that you following yourself isn't really working for you. You acknowledge him as savior when you admit that you can't save yourself. You experience him as king when you renounce trying to be the king of your own life. That means acknowledging that we've failed, that we've made wrong choices, that we've sinned. We've done what's wrong according to God's standard of right and wrong. And the Bible calls that sin, and sin uh, messes up everything. It messes up us. It breaks us and our lives. It breaks our relationships with other people, and sin most tragically breaks our relationship with God. And the problem of sin is not one that we can overcome in our own strength or with our own effort, try as we might. It takes a Savior to come and rescue us, and that's why God sent Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never made any wrong choices. He never did anything wrong. He never sinned. And Jesus says, I will give you the benefit of all of my right choices, and I will take the cost, the consequence, of all of your wrong choices. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't deserve to die, but he did so that he could take on himself a punishment that we deserved. And then Jesus rose from the dead to show his ultimate victory, and he shares that with us as well. So following Jesus means saying, Jesus, I believe that you lived and died and rose again for me, that that applies for me. I'm willing to entrust my life to you. I admit that I sin. I'm asking for forgiveness and a fresh start. That's what it means, and that's what you can do today. If that's where, where you're at today and that's a step you want to take, I want to encourage you to just express that to God in your own heart in prayer to Him. You can talk to someone you came with. You can talk to one of our ministry team members who will be up at the front after, after the service. You can talk to me. But don't leave here without saying that yes to Jesus. Don't miss this opportunity. The response for others of us who are already following Jesus may be a little different. Maybe some of us need to say, you know, I, I'm... I've, I'm a Christian, but I've never really prioritized this mission, but I want to do that today. Others, maybe it's, it's been a priority, but it's slipped because we've gotten distracted. Today's a day to realign. Maybe for others, it's a day to say, I've, I'm just reaffirming that I want this to continue to be a driving force in my life, to be about the mission that Jesus was about. I'm going to give us a moment of quiet right now and just to encourage you to go to the Lord with whatever he's saying to you and make that response. And worship team, if you can come back and be prepared to lead us. Let's just listen to the Lord and respond to him in this moment.
Jesus, we take seriously your words here in Mark 13, the warnings that you gave, and Lord, we, we can, as we look at the state of the world around us, it is so easy to get distracted. We see wars and rumors of wars and disasters, and we see persecution, and, and uh, Lord, we see so much spiritual confusion and so many people looking in all the wrong places for what only you can provide. Lord, we just confess we are distractible people. And so we admit that to you and we say, would you please, as we're making a commitment to focus on you, would you give us the grace to do that? Would you help us to see and understand what's happening around us without being distracted by it? We want to keep our gaze fixed on you. We want to notice what's around us, but we want to be fixed on you. So would you help us to do that, Lord? For any of us, Lord, who may need to make a decision today to start following you for the first time or to reprioritize your mission in our lives. I pray, Lord, grace for that as well, that you would um, help us to not just make a commitment in a moment, but live it out in the days and weeks and years to come. Lord, until the end comes, let us be about the work that you've given us to do and help us to do it well, individually and as a church, we pray. In your name, amen.